Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 13 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. Gavin, we're at lucky number 13. How does that make you feel? Good. I love 13. It was my number in soccer in high school. I love it. It was my, I. you know what? <laughs> of course it is. It was my number in baseball Ooh, uh, wow, when twins. I played. How about, it was always, uh, I always ended up liking it because people were always, you know, 13 was the unlucky number. Except for I heard somebody say at one time that uh, except for all the weirdos out there, 13 was their lucky number, <laughs> kind of the opposite, which I always I always really took to heart. So I am uh, I am very happy about episode number 13 here. And I think this is going to be a, uh, a fun episode. Before we get quite into that, we've got to make sure we do this week in science. So, Gavin, what was going on this week? Uh, I'm going to guess and say 2015. Let's see. So. No. <laughs> I had to I had to think so. I had not yet I had not yet decided exactly what one we were going to do. Um because I, there was one that Not one from 2015. No. There there was one that was more related, but I think we should do this one anyway just out of respect. So this is um okay. Uh so this is another twofer. So this is oh boy. March 13th and 14th. So this this coming Saturday and Sunday. Um Let's see. So March 13th, 2019, supermassive black holes detected in early universe. That's not the one out of respect, but we'll just get this one out of the way. Okay. Uh, Astronomers from Princeton University uh, utilizing the Subaru telescope. I didn't know telescopes could have product placement, but okay. Subaru. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Discovered the presence of 83 quasars powered by supermassive black holes in what is known as the early universe or the area of space nearest to where the Big Bang occurred. Each of these black holes is millions or billions times larger than our sun. I have lots of questions, especially when they say, like, the near the location of the Big Bang, but I'm just going to let that roll. Yeah, I don't know either, but we're I, just going right. to let it go. <laughs> um, right. my, understand, my understanding of the Big Bang would lead that to be a meaningless statement, but whatever. Anyways, what's the, out of respect, what's the, uh, let's move on to the next one. March 14th, 2018, renowned okay. scientist Stephen Hawking dies. Oh, so. Pour one out. Yep. I remember I had a, um, a, uh, astronomy professor in college who like, while I was taking his class, he like went out and met up with Stephen Hawking. The dude's oh, last name so was cool. Watson, uh-huh. <laughs> which like was, which was a great last name for the class. And he went out, he, there was a picture taken with him uh, and it was really cool. And so, yeah, Steve, yeah. Poor one out for Stephen Hawking. That was, I can't remember when that, when that happened. It was, I was there's not too many so scientists. Sad. Right. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of how many scientists who, when, you know, when they die, you know, it becomes headline news and, you know, for all the important work scientists do, they tend not to make, the front pages of you know the news yeah let me let me just look really quickly and see when uh carl sagan died oh carl so i'm trying sagan. to remember was... if i was alive when he died or not uh hmm, that's a i mean question. technically yes i was six months old um <laughs> <laughs> I don't, which means i was about a year old yeah i don't remember that one anyway so yeah uh march 14th 2018 uh let's see on march on march 14th 2018 stephen hawking died at age 76 the author of A Brief History of Time and Honored Physicist with Focus on Black Holes and Relativity, Hawking spent his life working to expand human understanding of the world. Hawking's... Uh, That's understatement of the century. Oh, God, I know, right? Hawking's contributions to science can never be properly measured. He will be remembered as one of the era's most amazing minds. Absolutely. So, again... Without a doubt. Yeah, like... I'm trying to think because, like, the only other scientist that I can think of, and this is me, like, even as a paleontologist, I can't think of somebody, like, in the field of, like, geology, honestly, that, like, when they die, it'll just be, like, massive like that. I, mm-hmm. I can't really think of anybody. Um, the only person that I could think of that would have been even, like, sort of recent would be um, Wegner, the guy who sort of first came up with the idea of plate tectonics but i'm pretty sure he's been dead since like the 80s um <laughs> but like that was the last like incredibly major groundbreaking thing in geology um maybe that alvarez guy who 
uh, we've mentioned a couple times discovered like the impact crater from the uh, impact that may or may not have killed the dinosaurs. And even then with both of those, like they are a lay person would know, not know I, that I speaking as a lay person, like you know, it is big in the field of geology, but right. it would make Stephen Hawking or like a Carl Sagan or an Einstein, you know, for going back to, I believe the fifties or so, you know, what kind of makes them separate is that they were, you know, they were known to the general public. And at this point, as a, if I'm trying to think of scientists known to the general public, I've got like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye. And I, I mean, I think I run out of steam there. Yeah, that's really the only other ones that I could think of. Cause I was thinking, you know, maybe Watson and Crick, the, the people that sort of discovered DNA, but at least Crick, mm-hmm. Crick is dead. Are they still alive? Crick died okay. in 2004. Uh, I don't, Th- those are ones that would probably make the headlines, even if like people didn't quite know them. They were, I think that's big enough to make headlines. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we're at that, you know, we're straining for number three and four, which I think right. kind of proves the point of just how, you know, just how important Stephen Hawking was. And Watts, Watson and is still alive, by the way. That's nuts. That's amazing. He is 92. You ever, you ever think about how, like, all the big advances that took place in the 20th century that we just now take as facts? Yeah, no, there's... we just kind of take as granted? Like, and those people are still alive, like, in, like, not even just in science. But oh, just, yeah. like... Like, whether you're talking about, like, Chuck Berry and rock and roll, who died a couple of years ago, or, like, all the foundational laws and rights, like your Miranda rights, those are, like, 50, 60 years old. And then, you know, all the scientific advancements. Like, all those people that did that were alive when most of the people that were listening mm. to this podcast were alive. And that's, when I stop and think about that sometimes, it's, it truly blows my mind just how recent, you know, everything is. I actually just thought of probably the most the the one that's going to like rock people when when he dies is Buzz Aldrin. Oh goodness! Wow. Because most people don't think of him as like a a scientist, but I certainly yeah. But yeah, he is like incredibly massive achievements. But yeah, he's currently ninety one. I will try and so. um, if I can remember, I'll put this in the in our show notes. Um, but there's a wonderful video of somebody who was questioning Buzz Aldrin on whether or not, like, he actually went to the moon, <laughs> some, like, moon conspiracy guy, and Buzz Aldrin punches him in the face. Oh, excellent. It is, it is, it is everything you would want it to be. Disclaimer, we do not advocate for violence on the podcast, but... Unless you're Buzz Aldrin. If you're Buzz Aldrin, you, you do whatever Yeah, you, you can want. do whatever you want. Your name, you're that... Right. <laughs> if you walk on the moon, you get a free pass for life. But also, could you just imagine having the name... Buzz, Buzz Aldrin. Aldrin. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Neil is Neil Armstrong still alive too. No, he died a couple years ago, actually. Yeah, Neil Armstrong's been dead. That is for true. 20, 20, years, 2012. Yeah. almost ten years. Twenty twelve. Wow, even longer than I. Anywho, thought. Anywho, we should probably actually get into the podcast. Uh, <laughs> we should. And if I if I sound different today, just uh, just for the record, we're recording this a touch earlier than normal, which means I don't have access to my typical microphone. So if I sound different, or you can hear uh, my girlfriend's brother. Uh, shouting in the distance. That is because he is doing very well or very poorly in a video game. Uh, and I don't have my uh, my normal setup. Under, understandable. So with that disclaimer out of the way. Of course. With that disclaimer out of the way, uh, I have been told that we don't have any notes for this episode. No, we do not. <laughs> the, the, the one question that I asked ahead of time, I was like, oh, Gavin, what does this mean? He said, we'll find out during the episode. So uh, with all of that out of the way, Gavin, you know, Hit me with your best shot here. What are we talking about today? So, uh, we sort of joked around about this I, a little bit last episode uh, as sort of like a shameless plug to my blog. Um, but the first article... By the way, Gavin, what is the uh, website of your blog? Deepdigs.net. Thank you for asking, Mike. Deepdigs.net. Deepdigs.net. <laughs> Deepdigs.net. Anyways, carry on. Yeah, so uh, the first article that I, that I posted on there was about a really fascinating uh, dinosaur specimen and how we we've talked before, Mike, that I'm not the biggest fan of like dinosaur research. We've made that clear, but this is uh, a, this was a stop. (laughs) This was a, a really interesting specimen in that it preserved a very particular piece of anatomy that we had not ever had preserved before in a dinosaur. And as Mike sort of alluded to, that would be its cloaca, 
or as most people would call it, it's butt. So we're talking about butts today. We are. And this is a science podcast. We are going to be talking about particular parts of anatomy. It is. I make a pledge to both you and the listeners that I got my, you know, my one single laugh out early, and Good. we'll, uh, and we'll keep it clean. And uh, I'm, what's the term here? Uh, I don't know. I, I will keep it clean from here on out <laughs> during the podcast, even though on the inside I will be making my own jokes. Understood. So, first we'll we'll talk about this piece of science news uh, because that's really what it is. Uh, so we'll talk about that and then we'll sort of talk about cloaca or cloacae is the proper plural in general. So, uh, if you would like to know more, you can head over to, uh, deepdigs.net and, and read some of my work. So back in what year was it? They, they found this specimen quite a while ago. Uh, but the, the actual research on this was published in like the first two weeks or so of, of 2021. Um, and they were actually studying the specimen for something else because generally, as you probably know, but have never really thought about, uh, it's pretty much always just bone when you find a fossil. You don't typically get the other bits. I kind of thought that was all you would ever get. It is very rare that you do, but it does happen. Um it usually happens when, you know, a dinosaur falls into a swamp or, or something similar to that and dies. Um, mm-hmm. But, God, I'm going to keep just subtly laughing myself anytime I say but. Um, oh, so now you get to do that. Okay. I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. You know what? Okay. Yeah, All right. As, lo- as long as we're both on the same page. Yeah, you do. Fine. Yes, you do. <laughs> Um, yeah, so they're actually studying the specimen for, uh, its skin because they actually could see pigments in its skin and sort of tell what color this dinosaur was, which is what they were mainly studying it for. And then really more or less, like it's not the entire dinosaur. It's really just the like closer portion of the tail and part of the, the back, I, I believe. Um, okay. So it's not the whole specimen, but it's like we can pretty much tell kind of what color this thing was, um, which is in and of itself so incredibly cool. Right. Um, And then as they were doing this, they uh, the researchers were like, wait, is that is that what I think it is? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it turns out, yes, this was a dinosaur cloaca. And not only was it a dinosaur cloaca. It was the first one that we have ever found. And so... What were the circumstances? So how, like, why was it we were able to actually get a dinosaur cloaca in this particular specimen? Was there anything specific in how it was in, in this particular dinosaur or the way that this one fossilized? Like, how, how did we get this? It is purely the fossilization. Um, it probably comes down okay. a bit to that this is a relatively small dinosaur. So this is a dinosaur called Cetacosaurus. It is in the same larger group uh, of dinosaurs as like Triceratops. Mm-hmm. Not all that closely related, but that's probably its closest relative that most people would recognize. Right. Um, but it was, you know, medium dogish sized. So f- as, as dinosaurs go, pretty small. Uh, but yeah, they just happened to have it really well preserved. I don't know even off the top of my head where this specimen was found. Uh, Sedacosaurus off the top of my head is pretty much exclusively found in China and Mongolia. So I'm assuming it was found somewhere over there. Uh, But it was on display in a museum in, in Germany. So like, I, I don't know if the people at that museum just were like, didn't notice it which raises a lot of immediate (laughs) questions to me (laughs) i mean even to me as well i don't know what i'm talking about well let me let me find the actual statement 
from from this the lead publisher on this paper it says i noticed the cloaca several years ago after we had finished or after we had reconstructed the color patterns of this dinosaur using a remarkable fossil on display at the sankenberg museum in germany which cl- clearly preserves its skin and color patterns so they were studying it for that other thing but it was you know at this museum and nobody had been like hey somebody should take a look at that <laughs> <laughs> um, but before we go any further, we will circle back to this interesting dinosaur butt story. But first, we should probably talk about what is a cloaca. I thought we made that clear, but go on. Well, because it's not just a butt. Oh. It is It is not just a butt. So, cloacae, the plural, is an all... They are an all-purpose orifice used for basically anything that happens at that section of the body. Okay. So it is used for reproduction. It is used for uh, excretion of nitrogenous waste or peeing. Not all animals pee, you know, like a liquid. Um, So elimination of nitrogenous waste is the technical term for that. And then elimination of uh, solid waste or poop. So a cloaca does all of those. And you might be... I was going to ask if it comes out, like, does it come out all at once? Like the oh, no. like, pee-poo mix, or is it two separate things? Well, it depends. Okay. Uh, for example, like birds. Birds are, you know, very famous for pooping. Be- right. Because they poop all the time. Um, yes. Which is actually just specialized adaptation, because if they sort of, you know, hold it in, that makes them ever so slightly heavier, which makes their flying less efficient, which is why birds poop so often. Um, Nature's amazing. Oh my God. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the same. That makes so much sense. It's the same reason why birds don't have teeth. Teeth are heavy. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons. It's also that birds just have a really high metabolism as well. Uh, so they need to eat a lot more than other reptiles because as we've thoroughly talked about, birds are reptiles. Um, they, okay. they need to eat much more than other reptiles and just in general, if you eat more, you poop more. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, so cloaca or cloacae are found in basically every vertebrate. Um, you know, when we get into invertebrates, stuff gets really weird. I don't know all that much about like invertebrate re- reproduction. Um, but in vertebrates, so your fish, your sharks, your amphibians, reptiles, including birds and mammals. Almost all of them, aside from placental mammals, and even in that, there are some exceptions, uh, they all have cloacae. And it's actually weird. There are some fish that actually don't. So fish had it, and then some of them separated the tubes, which which is weird, even though salamanders don't. So in that way, fish are like more, quote-unquote, like derived or more advanced in that sense, if you want to think about it that way, uh, than like amphibians, which is kind of a backwards thing, but still interesting. Still cool, yeah. So the biggest thing that I, I always like get asked whenever I try to explain this particular piece of anatomy to people is like, how how does it work? I, they were like, I feel like that'd be really messy. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And... I'm like, well, number one, they're animals. They care less about mess than humans do. Number two, it basically functions the same way that, like, you eating and breathing through the same hole works. There's just a flap that covers the ones you're not using at the time. Simple yet elegant. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty That's pretty much how it works. It's just the same opening. It is not the same, like, tubes. So, like, you know, there's one opening and then multiple different kind of... Ro- it's a fork in the road, basically. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so, just, we'll go over, like I said, just quickly, some of the surprising animals that you might not think have one. So, as we've talked about, all, all birds do. Um, within fish, so sharks and rays uh, and lobe-finned fishes, which include things like coelacanths, uh, lungfish and also a couple odd uh, like freshwater fish. Those are the only ones that have like a true cloaca. 
in lampreys, which are many people consider like the most primitive vertebrates that we still have around today, uh, and ray finned fish, which are what most people think of as fish, uh, things like perch, bass, things like that. Uh, part of the cloaca remains uh, when they're an uh, adult, and that is for uh, urination and reproduction, but they have a separate poop hole. So they just separated that one tube. Okay. And then in uh, chimeras, which are related to sharks, but not quite. Uh, sharks are slightly different. And then also most teleos. Okay, so I was actually a little mistaken. Um, teleos are the most common group of fish. So uh, there are some ray finned fishes, which are still in that same group. Teleos are like a smaller group of ray finned fish. Mm-hmm. But teleos are... The, the largest group, what most of what you think of as a fish, uh, they have three separate openings, just like humans do. Well, at <laughs> least fema- yeah, female well. humans do. Um, and they have, they have separate tubes, which is weird, considering when you look at amphibians, all of them that are still around today just have the, the one opening. Hmm. So this is like significantly more common than you might think. This is way more when you common. first hear it. Yes, right. Yeah. This is. It, would, it, would you say this is the dominant, uh, dominant way this is done, for lack of a a better term, off the top of my head? I would say this is the default. Default. Okay, that makes, I, that's a good way to put it. Um, it could be sort of a convergent thing. Just look because looking at the groups that uh, of of fish that have the the all-in-one hole. Um, <laughs> low fin fishes do, and those are what tetrapods, you know, land-based, you know, four-limbed uh, vertebrates ha- uh, have mm-hmm. as, the, as a default. So it could have been that, you know, both sharks and, and low fin fish evolved it separately. Okay. Or it could be that their common ancestor had it, I think that's probably the general thinking, but you know, uh, I really, really doubt that we have a specimen to, you know, show that for sure. So, right. That's really just speculation. I don't actually know. Um, and then, you know, a lot of other people sort of think, okay, well, if it's an all in one hole, like how does reproduction work? And then you kind of think, well, basically no animals besides mammals reproduce the way that mammals do. They have a lot. Most of them have external fertilization. So -hmm. like fish just kind of spray (laughs) eggs and sperm together. And then they just like finding Nemo. You see the little eggs. Right. You you took the words out of my mouth. (laughs) Yeah. They're all, you know, it it all happens outside, which seems, you know, way less painful. (laughs) Oh, Mike. I I mean, (laughs) Am I wrong? No, like, you are fish? absolutely correct. Um, okay. And so as we sort of move up, in quotes, the the vertebrate tree, we go to uh, amphibians. And uh, like, like I said, amphibians, all of them that I'm aware of, have uh, a cloaca and not separated tubes. And in fact, frogs reproduce pretty much like fish. The, the female lays eggs and the male just kind of hops over to them and fertilizes them. A lot of salamanders, mm-hmm. what they do is the male will uh, lay a like sperm packet hmm. and the female will come and like suck that up. So it's like it technically is internal fertilization, but not through direct action of the male. Right. That It's a completely separate, you know, both both participants don't need to be present at the same time. I mean, they typically are. There's usually like the, a little bit of like a mating sort of type ritual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that's, okay. that's how sal- salamanders are weird in a lot of ways. Um, and then, you know, moving up to reptiles, I believe all reptiles have it. Um, I, I don't believe, I don't know of any. I wouldn't say that there are none, but I don't know of any reptiles that don't have a cloaca that where all okay. three things are done from the same hole. Although 
there are some that do something else really crazy with their cloaca, mostly turtles. Okay. Turtles Tell me more. are really well known for being able to hold their breath for a really long time, right? I didn't know that, but now well, I know. I mean, they stay underwater for a long time. I, th- it's one of those things that makes total sense. I just never okay. thought about it that way. Many turtles, especially sea turtles, but also like uh, snapping turtles can do it too, can actually exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide through the water with their cloaca. <laughs> they can breathe through their butt. And is that, so can they all, I, th- I apologize for this being, <laughs> might be like the dumbest question, but so they can breathe through their butt and their mouth? Yes. So that it, it does not, so their cloaca does not connect to their lungs. Okay. In, is it just to the bloodstream? Yes. Instead, it works basically just like gills. There are um, a bunch of like little filaments on their cloaca that have just a lot of blood very close to like the surface of the tissue. Mm-hmm. And just because there's very little of a boundary there, oxygen and carbon dioxide can just sort of exchange through that. It is not nearly as efficient as their lungs, but it's what lets sea turtles stay underwater for like hours at a time. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So that's my favorite thing about cloacas is just that turtles use it to breathe casually. We're at like four or five of my favorite things that I've learned today. <laughs> In the 20-some-odd minutes we've already been recording. All right, keep going. Keep telling me new stuff. So then we get to mammals. And uh, there are three, as we talk about, three main groups of mammals. There are monotremes, the egg-laying ones, marsupials, and then placental mammals. So monotremes, uh, the four species of them that we have, they all have a true cloaca, which makes sense because, you know, they lay eggs. Marsupials mm-hmm. are weird. In, well, in, in many ways, but uh, regarding their, their cloaca, some of them have a cloaca, some of them don't. Um, okay. So, for example, marsupial moles do have one. That is a specific group that I believe is only native to Australia. Um, yes, they are only native to Australia. And that's kind of interesting. I think they are the only... Some of them have it as juveniles which is also weird to me. And and then they sort of split as they get older. <laughs> um, oh, really? So let, let me read it uh, directly from, from a Wikipedia page. Let's see. Yes, it's very official, I know. Uh, in marsupials, <laughs> the genital tract is separate from the anus, but a trace of the original cloaca does remain externally. So it's like mm. they kind of do, uh, but mm. kind of don't. Yeah, that's that almost raises more questions, but okay. Yeah, and then with those marsupial moles, some people kind of argue it's like, are they actually are they marsupials, or are they like monotremes that just don't lay eggs? <laughs> so, even today, with with species that are still around, we don't always know where they kind of fall in relation to other species, which I kind of love. That is cool how, you know, we, you know, you think there are these hard lines for, you know, what goes into what category. And anytime you start drawing hard lines, you're going to find an edge case. Yeah, absolutely. And then when we get to placental mammals, such as, you know, you, me, your dog, your cat. uh, The good stuff. That's true. Marsupials are pretty bad, with the exception of opossums. I do love opossums. Um, (laughs) Most, most, asterisk. Adult placental mammals do not have any remaining trace of a cloaca, although you did have one at one point. Oh, did I? When you were developing inside your mom, you did have an embryonic cloaca. Embryonic cloaca. So, uh, okay. And the, I assume that this was early on and it eventually evolved into you know, the other junk? No, I mean, no, I mean, this is like, like not evolution this is just like when you first form no, as, I mean. as like, like a, as a as an embryo yeah but then it does eventually right. divide there there are some right. medical conditions where it does not though oh okay yes they are called persistent cloaca 
And Cyranomelia, also called Mermaid Syndrome, which is a really horrible name for it, but we're going to move on. Um, I have actually, I remember watching, like when I was younger, I used to watch the TV show Medical Incredible. And okay. Every now and again, I saw something on that. And it was like, it's one of those things that sounds cool until you realize any of the possible implications. Of it. Yeah. Because it's like, if you're not supposed to have it all be one orifice, uh, that's bad. Uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah, there's there are many medical problems that I'm sure are associated with that, none of which are good. Um, but yeah, so in almost all placental mammals, separate tubes. However, in tenrex and golden moles, uh, which are native to Africa. In fact, I think tenrex are actually oh no i'm thinking of a different group so they are both in the order afro sorica uh, which are basically just african moles but not really related to the moles that we have in north america um they have cloacae as well as some shrews not all of them just some of them so that tells me that somewhere in their evolution, they had separate orifices and then evolved to recombine them back into one for some reason. That seems incredibly odd, especially the, like when you said that the default was to just have the, you know, the singular cloaca, like they, you know, evolved otherwise and then, you know, devolved back into just having the cloaca like mm -hmm. that that seems incredibly strange that it would kind of go back and forth that way. So sometimes things like that do happen. Um, okay. Yeah. There, there can be reversals like that. I have no idea what like the selective pressure for that would be. So for like in like evolution, if something happens, there is usually a selective pressure that like makes that adaptation better for some mm -hmm. reason. Okay. Um, and that's sort of what, you know, you know, natural selection, what is selected for, because it gives you a slight advantage over ones without that adaptation. So somewhere along the lines, either it was, it was probably a mutation that, you know, similar to like those uh, medical conditions in humans, uh, somewhere along the lines, one was born with, with a cloaca instead of the separate orifices. And that one didn't die. <laughs> so okay. it had babies with that mutation and so on and so forth until that's just a thing of the species. Right. Um, and, and the reason why I say it, it is just much more likely that these three groups uh, did it individually themselves, as opposed to they kept it from like the very early mammals and every other group of mammals switched you know what i mean mm -hmm. um if it was like a really basal or like primitive group of placental mammals that'd be that'd be one thing but these are not all that primitive if i'm remembering my mammalian taxonomy correctly um i'm sure you are oh eh, with with a lot of the smaller ones i don't really know all that well like a lot of like the mole and rodent like uh, animals, my taxonomy is not all that great. Um, but especially, especially like the African ones, they, they seem rather primitive, but the, the shrews definitely surprised me. But anyway, this is me rambling. Let's go back to what people want to talk about, which is dinosaurs. All right, let's bring it all back. So we've, we've gone through the, uh, the animal kingdom here and we have gone back to every four-year-old's favorite, the dinosaurs. So... The big question on everyone's mind when they sort of announced or realized, hey, is this the first dinosaur cloaca that we're aware of? Was I apologize for interrupting. Can I ask one quick question yeah. as we're talking about this? So was it hypothesized? Was it expected that dinosaurs had a cloaca before this discovery? Or was this did this kind of change our understanding of uh, dinosaurs? I mean... Obviously, we didn't know for sure, but we kind of assumed just because, you know, birds do. And also, mm -hmm. their closest relatives that are still alive, crocodilians, do. Okay. So, it's like, in a lot of ways, 
you know, bir- you know, dinosaurs are more like birds than like crocodiles, but in a lot of ways, they're sort of like an intermediary between the two, which which will come up uh, in in a bit. But we we had assumed, but until you find one, you don't know. It w- it would be more surprising if we found it the other way, but the fact that it was still discovered is significant. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so everyone, with, with dinosaurs sort of being, sort of, you know, I, I don't quite like using this terminology, but sort of being like an intermediary between birds and uh, crocodilians, people were like, well, is their cloaca more like uh, birds or more like a crocodilians? And, and it was really interesting because I'll read another direct quote from sort of the press release that they did for this paper. So this is a quote from... Uh, was, is it the same scientist? Uh, yes, it is the same scientist that we quoted earlier. So they said, it took a long while before we got around to finishing it off, uh, to finish it off because no one has ever cared uh, about comparing the exterior of cloacal openings of living animals. So it was largely uncharted territory. <laughs> Which, I mean, I guess. <laughs> um and so none of none of the internal uh, features of the cloaca was preserved, just the outside, which is why they specify okay. the exterior of cloacal openings. Um, okay. So, and then the second author uh, on the paper added, "Indeed, they are pretty nondescript. We found that the vent, uh, another word for cloaca, uh, does look different in many groups of tetrapods, uh, but they sort of suggested." that it looks more like a cloaca of a crocodilian than it does of a bird. Which is interesting. Was there any reason they thought that? Um, I mean, just just comparisons. Uh, they, they, they also appears to be, you know, it's, it's hard to tell without any of like the actual like tissue, but there appeared to be what might be scent glands near it. Which scent glands? Yes, which birds do not have, but crocodilians do. Would can you? So okay, I've got like two different ideas of what this might be. What what do scent glands do? Produce scents. Okay, I was it was one of two things. <laughs> no, they they do not sure they do not that. smell through their butt. Some reptiles breathe I, I, through know, their butt, but they do not smell through their. Butt. I'm glad I'm glad you were able to read my mind on that one. Okay. <laughs> Yes, moving on. They they produce scents, um, like like pheromones and things like that. Um, and because like like I said uh, a while ago, they said they were looking at this originally for the pigments in the skin, and they were like, "Well, is this what do the pigments look like on the butt?" <laughs> <laughs> and it is a not significantly, but it is sort of a different color on the glands. So it's possible they think that it was using like the scent from the glands and also. Like the the color, maybe they could like flush it with blood to make it change colors, um, to communicate between each other, similar to uh, like baboons, or uh, I know like mandrills are like the primates known for having like the really bright, colorful butts. Okay. So, well, I mean, like like Rafiki. Sure. Um, but yeah, uh, they will commonly uh, sort of signal to each other with their butt, and it's a really interesting piece of behavior, which is behavior. Things in paleontology are really hard to come by just because mm-hmm. like, there's only so much you can get from bones, you know? Right. But this was a really interesting sort of development that they were like, this is the first real, you know, concrete evidence for any kind of behavior, at least in this dinosaur. Right. Uh, let's see. Some modern, like modern crocodilians don't signal like that with, with their butt, which makes sense just looking at a crocodilian. Um, but a lot of birds do. Birds are really, really famous for their like interspecies, like behavior, you know, with, with one another. So especially for things like mating. So this could have been that, you know, who knows, Cetacosaurus might've done some kind of mating dance type thing as we see in many birds using its cloaca. Um, and Cetacosaurus also does have some feather-like 
quills along uh, its its tail. So, um, but unfortunately, they they couldn't tell whether this individual was a male or a female, which would help a lot. You know, how would you go about doing that in with a dinosaur? Uh, you would need to to be able to see some of the tubes and stuff on the inside. So have we, are we able to determine, have we ever been able to determine whether dinosaurs are male or female? Yes. So in some, it's just size comparisons. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, in most reptiles, not all of them, but most, uh, females are larger. Really? Okay. Uh, Lizards generally know. A lot of, in almost every species of snake that I can think of, uh, I, I don't know of a case where the males are larger. Either they're equal or the female is substantially larger. Um, Understood. Which is a similar case in many, many invertebrates because, like, frankly, sperm are cheap. You, you don't <laughs> need to be that large to be able to produce sperm. Fair. But to produce and actually take care of and make sure your eggs hatch, you want to be relatively big so you can invest resources in eggs instead of yourself. You know what I mean? That makes total sense. Yeah, exactly. That makes total sense. So uh, we actually know for a fact that Sue, the, uh, I don't believe it is anymore, but for a very long time was the most complete T-Rex skeleton that we've had. Um, we, We can tell that Sue is a female because she's, huge even for a t-rex and also just very robust compared to some other t-rex specimens that we've had um Mm -hmm. for some species you can tell with things about their pelvis uh, and that it's just shaped in a certain way that would better allow eggs to be laid whereas you know obviously a male wouldn't need a pelvis quite like that um but yeah it's it's really interesting that i don't believe we could tell with this individual I don't think that there's too many skeletal features in this dinosaur in general that can tell whether it's a male or female, but that would really help. Um, sort of if this was, if we had a comparison of like a male's cloaca and a female's cloaca, you would probably expect that the males would be more pigmented just because, you know, in birds, you know, think of like a cardinal where like the males are bright, bright red and the females are kind of like right. a duller, drab brownish type color with a little bit of red mm-hmm. um so you would probably expect the males to be more pigmented uh like that as well but again no way to really know that so right i'll just kind of inferring based on you know what we know today yeah um but this sort of does you know lend some credence to the idea that dinosaurs are sort of intermediary between dinosaurs and birds where it's like the anatomy itself was more crocodilian with the scent glands and also just sort of the, the structure of, of the cloaca. Whereas the behavior side of things might've been much more bird-like, which I think is really neat, you know? Right. Uh, and then there was also, they also worked with uh, a paleo artist, which is actually like a really, uh, important, you know, part of paleontology. Uh, granted, they take a lot of artistic liberties. Uh, I was going to say, so I'm, I, I've been looking at your website for most of this episode. Mm-hmm. Is this where we get the uh, this picture at the top of this particular article? Yes, it is. Um, so if you go on the website, I mean, everything is, you know, all the places where you can find this this artist uh, are right on there. But the, the this picture that's on the website was released with the article uh, by this artist named Robert Nichols. And uh, granted, in almost every type of dinosaur, we don't know what color they were. That's pretty rare that we do. Uh, We're getting better at that, where it's like now we kind of only need a little bit of skin. We can do some chemical analysis and some optical analysis uh, to, to sort of get a better picture of what color they were. But that's still wild. Oh yeah, um, and it's actually really interesting. Um, this is not at all. Well, I guess it's tangentially related to cloacae. But I actually heard some uh, news about us figuring out 
potentially what color some dinosaur eggs were. Which is weren't they just egg colored? You would think, but think about a lot of birds. Like robins have these baby blue, you know, like sky blue colored eggs. You just keep this, you know what? For an episode with no notes, you just keep absolutely <laughs> blowing. Wow, okay. So uh, the idea is that many reptiles that, that you know, that lay eggs, because not all of them do, but they have just mm-hmm. sort of a an eggshell <laughs> colored egg. <laughs> who who would have guessed? But yeah, well. they uh, that sort of implies that they're buried. Because why would you need to invest any kind of pigment in an egg if it's going to be hidden to begin with? Whereas a lot of birds, because some birds also do, um, you know, make burrows and things like that. Uh, but they looked at the, you know, egg colors between birds that do burrow and birds that do not. Mm-hmm. And there was a really clear difference in that things like robins that do not, uh, you know, have different colored eggs or even some that aren't necessarily like bright colored like a robin's egg might have like speckles on it to make it look like it's just dirt, you know, whereas ones that do burrow were just typical, no, no patterns on them at all. Okay. Um, but pigments, you know, are the color that they are because their chemical structure is very particular. So when you see something that is it absorbing every color, except the one that you see, because that's what's reflected off of that surface. Okay. So, yeah. So it's like, if you see something that's green, it is absorbing every other color and reflecting the green wavelength of light back at you. And that's what you see. Okay. This actually, now now that I'm thinking more about this, I do remember this from like my eighth grade art class. Oh, see, I was thinking more biology with like chlorophyll. So like, maybe that there's different kinds of chlorophyll that plants use, uh, which is why leaves turn uh, like red or orange or yellow in the fall because they're changing the kind of chlorophyll that they use. Right. Chlorophyll A, which is the normal one that you see as green, absorbs the red and orange and yellow wavelengths because mm-hmm. those are what's stronger in like the summer. And then when they switch to their fall colors, the green wavelengths are stronger in the fall. So it wants to absorb them and it reflects the, the red or orange or yellow that you see. Hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, so they looked at like the, the structure of some of these pigments in these dinosaur eggs and found that some of them were colored. Maybe not bright blue like that, but they were not the typical eggshell color. Right. They were the different than the default that I would think of. Right. So that implies that they had above ground nests, which like seems kind of obvious, but again, it's just putting together more pieces that we didn't have before. Right. But yeah. So that is, that's pretty much all I got for dinosaur cloacae. And I, once again, I just, I pointed this out, I think two or three times already this episode, but for an episode without note, like this was <laughs> just, just kind of you riffing, and I shouldn't say riffing because you did read a whole article on it, which I'll make sure that we link um, in the show notes for this episode, but just all the different, you know, things that come with this. The fact that, you know, there was a dinosaur found with a butthole, you know, semi-intact. Like, it is it, it is wild, all the stuff that goes with it and all the other things that, you know, need to go with that to, you know, try and get a basic understanding of it. It is, it, it really is kind of amazing just how much goes into you know every little thing the whole we stand on the shoulders of giants thing every little discovery comes with you know a thousand other things that will come before and after it oh absolutely and i think it really just goes to show like the whole fossilization process how so incredibly rare getting anything to be preserved as a fossil to begin with is like one in a million like having something like this is like one in a billion, if not more. Yeah. I mean, I, it was always my understanding that you got bones and that was it. And the fact that like, it is even possible to get more than bone is wild to me. Most of the skin 
stuff that we do have from dinosaurs is from skin impressions. So it's like the dinosaur dies and falls in some mud and its skin mm-hmm. leaves essentially like like a skin version of a footprint. Right. So it's like we know for quite a few dinosaurs, not all of them, obviously, but for many dinosaurs, we know like roughly what their scale pattern was and why we know that dinosaurs had sort of the more lumpy type scales uh, relative to like what you think of with like bird feet, how they're sort of like overlapping. Dinosaurs didn't really have mm-hmm. that. Uh, and we actually know that from skin impressions. So there's many, many things that we do know about dinosaurs, but this also just goes to show how many things we just don't. There are many things that we infer, but until you get a one in a billion specimen like this, uh, that so many things can be learned from this. And I'm positive that more studies are going to be done on this specimen. And if they do, you'll hear about them first year. <laughs> uh, I sure, I sure hope so. And I sure hope that uh, we continue doing this. And that is kind of a good, a good reminder that, uh, you know, why the good science is needed, uh, you know, to learn, you know, there is still quite a bit more to be learned. Even if, you know, you might think there is, you know, what is there left to learn about dinosaurs? Well, you know, buttholes. Even buttholes and oh, go ahead. No, it was just buttholes <laughs> and everything else. Well, even just how many things that like we currently have in museums that we just don't know. And again, like it blows my mind that this has been in the museum. Um, it, they, I think they said in the press release exactly how long, or or roughly how long this had been with the museum. I didn't put it in my article that I wrote, but like. It's not like they had just found it. This wasn't right. like a new specimen. It was a specimen that had been there. And so just think about how many, you know, for example, like the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, they've got thousands and thousands, probably closer to millions of specimens. How many of those might have something, maybe not quite as obvious as this, but definitely something potentially as important as this that, you know, just kind of gets lost in the crowd. It's, you know, hiding in plain sight. Exactly. So, I don't know. I None of us know until somebody <laughs> somebody does the work. And, uh, and I think that is a, a wonderful place to leave off here. So, uh, Gavin, thank you very much for this episode. I know you've got a, a fun week planned coming up, and I hope that you have a, a wonderful time. Uh, going to explore a few national parks. This has been episode number 13 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. We did an episode about buttholes, everybody. <laughs> you can't say you can't say you don't come here for the entertainment. Oh my God. Thank you, Gavin, and thank you to the listeners. We will see you next week. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fenella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you.